0: what as you can see in our projection screen there's a picture of me and christina at the royal wedding um too much of uh um christina's exuberance we got invited to go to a royal wedding and uh we were surrounded by people who were just as excited as Christina to be at a royal wedding, which was, uh, um, you see celebrities, you see royals, you see um, everybody kind of walking past who normally you see on TV, but you're like seeing them in real life and seeing them walking with you know their famous partners and all sorts of things. And we all, I think we all felt uh, that we were like looking at greatness, all these people walking by, and we we're like cordoned off, like we can't even get, we can't get near them, we can get close enough, but we can't really get near them, we can't touch them um, because they're too great. Some of them did come over and say hello. That's true, but we couldn't touch them. That's right. You can get, it's bad news for that. Somebody did come shake hands, James Blunt came and shook, shook some hands. Oh, it might have been a hand shaken or two. That's true. Yeah, just imagine what your hand must have felt like. <laughs> um, the question, I guess, is that we're gonna looking at today is like what is greatness? I think all of us have a different definition of what that's like, and you may not be as obsessed with the royals as Christina, you might be drinking from a Queen Elizabeth mug, even, that came somewhere around here, one of you. Um, oh, there it is in the back, I see. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, it might be a footballer, it might be a, you know, who's popular in the media now, might be an actor, act, uh, some a politician even. Um, and I think we have a bit of a celebrity obsession ourselves. Uh, what do we think of celebrities? We probably think they're Pretty obsessed with themselves, don't we? Probably. Oh yeah, celebrities I just think about themselves all the time, tweeting out, you know, everything, you know, practicing award speeches, things like that. Uh, I mean, maybe they are obsessed with themselves. I don't know one well enough to know either way. But I think like, we are definitely obsessed with them. They're in our magazines. They're on TV. Uh, if we are connected to one in every kind of some slight small way, we tell people all the time. I remember um, my uncle uh, growing up uh, was really good friends with the guys in Stone Temple Pilots, the band, the nineties grunge band. And I would tell my friends all the time, "Oh yeah, my uncle tours around the Stone Temple Pilots because you know, because um, there was some level of like they are great. I want a part of that greatness, and so I'm going to connect myself to that greatness because that's what that's what um, life is all about—being great." So I think there's a part of us that really believes that greatness resides in some kind of level of celebrity, however you define celebrity for yourself. Uh, And so because greatness resides there, we're enamored by it, and then we'll look at it, and we'll watch TV shows about it, and and chat shows, and all sorts of things. Um, But what we learn from Jesus here in these verses is that uh, greatness, like true greatness, is not found in celebrity. It's found somewhere else. It's found not in acting out being a celebrity, but actually acting out being a servant, which is hopefully encouraging words to our lack of great meeting space as a church today. (laughs) Uh, And if we're busy searching after celebrity status, we're actually gonna be blinded to what true greatness really is in our lives. And so we'll think we're searching after that thing, but we won't actually really get to that thing. And another thing we're gonna learn from Jesus this morning is that Jesus heals us of that wrong view of greatness. It's not up to us to kind of like, oh, okay, so like, like being a servant, that's the greatest thing, so okay, so now I'm gonna do it myself. Jesus is the one that heals us of our celebrity obsession, of our own kind of version of jacked up greatness inside of ourselves, and he calls us to embrace our identity as servants. Um, so first, let's look at what Jesus' view of greatness is, and this is in the first part of, um, of the story here. If you have your Bible, your app, just keep it open, we're going to look at some things here. So in verses 32 through 34, Jesus is uh, on his way to Jerusalem, which he twice has already told the disciples, this is where I'm going to die, like, I'm, I'm going to my death. And he tells about his death again, Uh, and Jesus is kind of coming off of some really hard words to where his followers and his disciples are either astonished or afraid. It's very common in Mark. People who are following Jesus aren't like, oh, Jesus, he's so cuddly and nice. Isn't he great? Most of the time they're like, holy mother, Jesus is scary as anything. But yet there's something attractive about it. Like There's this kind of strange uh, fear and astonishment that goes up. Well, Jesus is telling the disciples for the third time now he's going to be tortured to death. Uh, by the religious and p- political establishment. And this is the plan. Uh, and uh, he, he, this uh, leads up to uh, the kind of astonishment and stuff leads up to this this third prediction of his death. Um, this, I think these verses here, they tell us a few things. First, it says that Jesus is leading the way in verse 32. I, I think that's more than just actually leading the way of the path toward Jerusalem. Everyone would know how to get to Jerusalem, but Jesus is in the front leading the way. I think that's more than just a physical leading, it's, it's just a metaphorical leading the way as he does through his whole life. The way that Jesus is leading as he's telling them is the way of the cross. The cross is not a great thing in the eyes of anybody. It's a very low thing, it's a, it's a shameful thing. And Jesus is not surprised by being killed, in fact, like he's like, this is what I'm going to do. This is part of the plan, guys. This is what it means to, like, if you're following me, this is where I'm going. The second thing that we learn from from these verses is that Jesus is going to be betrayed by by the elite. The religious elite, the religious leaders are going to betray Jesus and then hand him over to the political leaders to carry out stuff that the religious leaders couldn't do. So religious leaders and political leaders are both working together so that Jesus will be put to death, but not just put to death in kind of a back room. He'll be put to death in a very public, shameful, humiliating kind of situation. He'll be mocked. So with the mouths that Jesus himself has fashioned, those mouths that were used to bless others will be used to curse their creator. He'll be spat upon. I mean, have you ever like watched a film sequence or where people are in a fight or whatever, but then someone spits in someone else's face? It's like I don't think there could be an easier way to degrade somebody more than spitting in someone. It's very easy to spit in someone's face. I don't think that's probably gotta be the easiest way to degrade someone as as much as you can. Just spit in their face. It always kind of takes me back, like someone could be punching somebody, somebody could be stabbing somebody, but they spit in their face like, ooh, like that was really bad. <laughs> He'll be flogged. I mean, being flogged meant uh, the Romans would strip Jesus uh, Jesus would tie his hands to a post above his head, and because it was too much effort and energy for one Roman centurion, a trained soldier, to flog a man, they would have to have two. They would have to trade off because it it just took too much energy from them. Um, There's a book called The Crucifixion of Jesus, A Medical Point of View, just a, a brief little snippet. It says, at first, the heavy heavy leather pieces cut through the skin only. Then, as the blows continue, they cut deeper in the subcutaneous tissue. Because it's not just leather strips. There's, like, bones and lead and other parts in there. Um, Producing first an oozing of blood from the capillaries and veins of the skin, and finally spurting arterial bleeding from vessels in the underlying muscles. Finally, the skin of the back is hanging in long ribbons, and the entire area is an unrecognizable mass of torn, bleeding tissue. This is not just a quick death. Pretty gross. And finally, there is a death, though. It's a shameful death. In some ways, with the cross being a, such a recognizable symbol, I think it kind of undoes the shame and humiliation and grossness of the cross. Like, we see it everywhere. We wear it as jewelry and stuff. There's nothing wrong with wearing it as jewelry. But um, it's, it's a horrible way to die slowly suffocating to death because you have to hold yourself up. And if you don't, then you're, you suffocate. I mean, Mark spends a lot of time in Jesus' death. And we'll get to that later on when we get there. Um and what it means to be the suffering king, but the cross was generally, was a way to simultaneously humiliate the person as much as possible and scare the daylights out of anyone else watching so they wouldn't do the same. It wasn't in some kind of closed back door or, or there was no dignity associated with this. It was in the open, but it was in the open, but it was also outside the city walls telling everybody, this guy, he's not like us. If you're like this guy, this is what happens to you. But lastly, what Jesus talks about in the very end of of verse 34, is that um, humiliation and death is not the end. It's part of the track, but it's not the end of the line. Because Jesus will rise again in a new life, and a new body. So death isn't the end at Jerusalem, It's, it's really only the beginning. And because Jesus is stronger than death, he can basically do whatever he wants. And what he wants to do is give us a gift of new life. It's not something we have to wait for, but something we can experience even now, as we live this Christian life. So uh, crazy ups, crazy downs, just in those kind of verses 32 through 34. And we, if you've been around the church before, you've heard this before. This is like probably nothing new. But uh, we shouldn't just kind of stop, like just step over that. I think like, it's kind of amazing that Jesus would talk about his death in this way. And not just kind of a one-off, but multiple times over and over and over. It's like he wants us to get it. He's like, I know you guys aren't going to get it, so I'm going to repeat myself. I know you guys aren't going to get it. So I'm going to repeat myself. There's um a saying in ancient Greek that was picked up by the early Christians um it was uh called memento mori and see to my screen to the left an image of these ancient Greek uh, <laughs> statues. Basically, it was uh, a way for people to remember death. There were coins that were made, or if you ever see like, a classical painting with someone holding a skull, it's this idea of memento or just remember, remember death, remember you are going to die. Um, Jesus wants his disciples to know that he, they, that he will die. He's not running away from his death like, like we all do, or we, at least we try and pretend like it doesn't exist. Uh, but he's also doing more than just dealing with it because he set his face towards Jerusalem, towards his death. It's part of his plan. It's not like something that incidentally happens. He's not avoiding it. He's not trying to get a shortcut around it. And this is the greatest thing he could do for his people. Why? Why would Jesus, he could do anything he wants. Why is he doing this? Like, it doesn't make any sense in our brains. Um, this is something more than just a dramatic act. It's more than just like setting an example of how we ought to live. Although those things are true. Uh, this is more than uh, God kind of being um, an overly dramatic kind of teen being like, oh, look how amazingly I love these people. Um, the, there's a theological word here that I think is helpful. The theological word is efficacious, which means it actually affects something. Jesus' death itself actually does something. It's an example to look for and and to live and to model our lives after, yes. Um, But Jesus' death and resurrection actually changed history and changed the way way that things are. Um, Here's three of the main things that that Jesus' death and resurrection does. First, it frees us from the penalty of sin and gives us a new status. So all of our mistakes, all of our shortcomings, all of our guilt, all of our shame, all those things that we kind of are burdened with and we carry with us wherever we go, all those things are removed from us. Now, that by itself is amazing, but we aren't left as some kind of like blank slate, okay, now we're like at 0%. We were like maybe 50% bad, but now we're kind of at 0% either. Now, we're not neutral. We're we're given all the virtue, all the goodness that Jesus has, all the worthiness and purity that he has to us. So Jesus takes on all of our brokenness, and he gives us all of our goodness. All the red ink spilled in our ledger books of listing our debts to others, our debts to ourselves, all debts to, to God, those are all wiped out, and there's no record of those debts anymore. And in its place, we get a new book that's with unlimited potential. So even when we mess up, and we will, we find that that ledger is still clean. That's one aspect of what Jesus' death and resurrection did. Another aspect of what his death and resurrection did is it frees us from the power of sin by giving us a new heart. So the, uh, the penalty of sin is in the past. The power of sin is something that lives now in, in the present, like being under the power of, of sin because our hearts are jacked up. And we have the ability now to live in the way that we truly want to through Jesus' death and resurrection. And more than that, we can desire to live that way. Sometimes it's like, I don't even want to want to do the right things, but through what Jesus has done, like, we can. God's desires become ours, so we get free from living for ourselves or pride or money or sex or comfort or riches, whatever the things are, and we're actually enabled to live for something greater than all those things, because all those things are too low for us. We're made for so much more. Now, we're still going to make mistakes, but now we're actually no longer slaves to those mistakes. This is because God himself comes to dwell within us through the Holy Spirit. And that's what Jesus' death and resurrection has done. Another thing that Jesus' death and resurrection has done is so we have the penalty, the power, and then we will be freed one day from the presence of sin. We know that not only are we broken, but our entire world is broken. Our families are broken. Our neighborhood is broken. Our city is broken. Within each one of us is a hope that maybe the world isn't as bad as it seems, or maybe one day it won't be as bad as it seems. Maybe there will be some kind of happily ever after that we can all live in. Now, for those who follow Jesus, we get to be part of reflecting that world that we want in this world now. Just like how we're made new individually through Jesus, one day our whole world will be made new through Jesus. And when this new world comes, those who have a new status and a new heart, will be made completely new in all the ways. And the presence, the penalty and power of our brokenness is done away with. Because there's no more presence of sin anymore. So the mistakes we still make now and our current life struggles, they won't plague us now because we'll be in a world that's remade new in ways that I don't even begin to understand. And so those are just really basic things of what Jesus' death and resurrection does. This is why he's doing it this way, because there's no other way to do it. It's an example of how to live, but um, how can we begin to live up to the example if our hearts are just kind of broken as they were to begin with? An example is great, but if we can't live up to that, that's just frustration. Jesus doesn't want to live that way. He wants us to live along his path. So maybe we should take the idea of memento mori to another level, which is, um, I had to ask a friend who knew Latin, memento mori Christi, which means remember the death of Christ. So Jesus died we don't, so we don't have to. That means when we make mistakes that we're ashamed of, the shame is put to death through Jesus. We have forgiveness. So we get to send that shame to the cross, and the hope of living a new life is now set on the resurrected Lord, if we remember it, the death of Christ. When your life isn't matching with the bar that you set inside yourself. Does anyone else feel like that? Like, oh, I should be here, but man, I'm like, down here. Not on Sundays, right? We're all perfect on Sundays. <laughs> and then Monday comes, like, oh, gosh. Um, well, you, you you don't have to live in that inadequacy, because we get to send that to the cross. We don't have to live under that burden. That's, that's not who we are. When we're harsh to our kids, when we're harsh to our partner, we send that guilt to the cross. When we don't live our, love our neighbors the way we really, really like to, or even maybe sometimes the ways we feel burdened to, we get to send that to the cross, and we get to live in a new way, one that allows us to be more kind, one that allows us to love people in ways we couldn't before. And that's what happens when we rely on Jesus' death and resurrection instead of our own power to do anything. Now, that sounds like the end of a sermon, right? Well, let's just go to Warthog now. Um, that's just the first point, sorry. Uh, so, um, because there's more stuff here. And, and Mark has put these stories together, I think, uh, as he does. Um, he's a great editor. Uh, he puts these stories together for a reason. So this is that was Jesus' view of greatness. He's like, I'm going to die for you, you guys who don't get it, who are afraid of me and astonished by me and kind of follow me, but most of the time you don't. Um, and also I'm going to resurrect for you so that you can live in this way that you kind of almost want to but don't really want to. That's Jesus' view of greatness. That's amazing. Let's see what our view of greatness, which is not so amazing. Uh, in verses 35 through 45, we have, so this is Jesus about, he just told people he's going to die for them. And then what does the next thing say? James and John, um, the, their brothers, they say, Teacher, we want to do for us whatever we ask. It's kind of like when Colin tries to get you into Dad, will you do what I ask you? It's like, I don't know. What are you asking me? Um, I mean, first of all, we want you to do for us whatever we ha- What more could Jesus have done? He just said, I'm going to die for you. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's cool. But uh, we have another request. Um, so Jesus plays along. Well, what do you want me to do for you? Okay, let's hear it. What, what, what's the setup? It's like, let one of us sit at your right hand and left in your glory. Like, uh, we just want to be seen as better than everybody else. The hubris we want the glory. We want to be in the place of power. We want to be the place where everyone, not just in the place of power, but where everyone sees we're in the place of power because that's really what matters. And Jesus lets them know how ignorant they are. He says, you don't even—you know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I'm about to drink or the baptism I'm about to have? Basically, can you drink the cup of wrath? Can you be baptized in, in blood? And they're like, oh, yeah, 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 we got that. That's cool. We can do that. Like, what else you got? Um, they just are completely ignorant. And, but Jesus says, yeah, actually, you know what? You will die a martyr's death. You will drink the cup and you will be baptized. Um, but to sit at my right or my left, you, don't have, you have no idea what you're asking. These places are prepared for people who deserve and you don't. Um, but then Jesus also, instead of just kind of being indignant and just walking away from these people, which I would totally get, um, uh, Jesus uses it as a teaching moment. In verse 45, it says, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many which is what he just told them when he said he was going to die. We're slow to understand. But Jesus has a unique death because Jesus has come as a life as a ransom for many. That makes Jesus' death different than ours. Our lives are not ransoms for many. Jesus is unique. A ransom buys something. It releases something. It gives freedom to something that didn't have freedom before. That's the new status, a new heart, a new world, the things we talked about. This is what Jesus redeems for us. And then he kind of goes in a bit of a parable and and, um, talks about their own experience. Like, you know how the rulers that you have, you know, they they lord their authority over you. And those rulers have other rulers that lord their authority over them. Basically, Jesus is saying, like, you know how the world works with power? This is not how you're supposed to work with power. You know how the world kind of abuses authority for their own greatness? This is not how it's supposed to be with you if you want to follow me. So basically, Jesus is teaching them what does it mean to lord over people versus being a servant. The disciples had firsthand experience of what it was like to, for the Romans to lord over their power and authority and taxes and all sorts of things over them. And this is how blind people chase greatness. We grab power and wealth where we can. But Jesus says, not so with you, because we're not like that. We're servants. So there's the lording over people versus being a servant. But I think it's also, if we take a little bit deeper look, um, there's also the idea of acting like a servant and actually being a servant. I think there's it might be a hairline but a um difference, but a world of of how it interacts in our world. There's a difference between acting like a servant and being a servant. Jesus calls us servants, he calls us slaves, even if we follow Jesus, that is our identity as a servant. It's more than something we do when it's convenient, like oh I'll be a servant on this Sunday, but not this Sunday, or I'll serve when i when it works for me and not when it doesn't work for me. I'll serve my work colleague as long as I get so some you know, uh, some gratification, some recognition from it. We serve because we are servants. Jesus served because that's what he, he didn't try and serve a whole lot so he would get to servant status. He was a servant. That's why he served. It was an identity. And it's the same thing for us, for all who call themselves Christians. Now, living this way makes us different from the culture around us because the culture around us is not obsessed with being the greatest servant like we maybe we like virtue signal by talking about how amazing we are to people, but we really don't care about serving others, especially when other people view us as servants, we want to let them know, no, I'm not really like that." Or if they treat us like servants, then we get bent all, you know, all bent out of shape. I think most of us are unsure about who we are in Jesus, so we grasp at all these kind of external things to define us. And so we compare ourselves to others. And that's what James and John are after. If they're in the place of glory. They're better than all the other disciples. Now, all the other disciples, when they get back, it says that they were indignant. I think they were indignant because James and John beat them to the punch. Wait, no, we wanted to be at that place of glory. Ah, they asked first. Dang it. Maybe next time. They didn't understand that their identity was being a servant first, and we have that same problem. We're just like James and John. Jesus, I want you to do for me whatever I ask. And one reason I know that we all have the same problem is I bet you compare yourself to others. And that's not some kind of ninja pastoral skill. That's just like how we are as humans. Many psychological studies, actually, I read a few of these um, this past week, have shown that if you were given a choice, you would rather be dumber and uglier if the people around you were dumber and uglier. (laughs) Like, you would, like, sacrifice whatever kind of level of attraction and intelligence you have as long as you're, like, smarter and look better than the people around you. Which is hilarious. And, um, yeah, I get that. I'm, I'm fine for that. Um, you know, average is below average in our world. We don't want to be average. That's below average. And how, how do we keep that up all the time? Think of all the energy we put into that. You know, the saddest person in the Olympics is a wor- person who wins, the, wins a silver medal. Because they're on the podium, gold is right there. And, and p- people have actually done studies on um, facial like muscle things and how people move their muscles, things like that, to show that the reactions of people right after they win, um, if you get a silver, you are depressed, sad, angry. Uh, all the other kind of things. If you get a bronze, you're happy. Hey, you're one step away from not getting a medal at all. Obviously, if you win a gold, you're great because you're like the best in the world. Um, but the silver is, is because we're always obsessed with comparing with, our, with, with each other. A silver medal, means you are the second best athlete in that thing that has, exist- like, that lives on the planet right now. That is crazy. But you're one step away from being the best. Oh. But we don't have to get stuck in that game. You know, We already have been given an identity. And it's definitely not celebrity, thankfully. (laughs) I don't think the rest of the world would uh, be surprised by that either as Christians. We're not supposed to be celebrities. We're supposed to be servants. In Christ, therefore, you can actually seek greatness through service. We can actually seek greatness. And if we're following Jesus, we're called to serve. We're compelled to serve. We're committed to serve. Because what we do flows from who we are, and that's who we are. So we like all the servant talk until we get treated like one. Now, hopefully people in Redeemer aren't treating you like a slave or a servant. We want to build people up. But when that happens, especially from people who don't understand what the Christian faith is about, when that happens, when they treat you like a servant because of what you believe, that's how it works. Like, that's how it works. When we're treated like a slave, why do we get bent out of shape about it? We should expect it. I doubt that there's a mad dash to be a slave in your work environment. (laughs) Or maybe you feel like you're enslaved already. I don't know. This is probably not a mad dash to be, to be the servant in your family. You know, I want to be the biggest servant in my family. How can I serve the best and not even get my name out there to serve in, you know, and isolate, not in isolation, but yeah, without people knowing. How can we be the biggest servant and be to serve most people in Redeemer? Now, we're often most concerned with how Jesus will get us what we want. He's going to be a shortcut to our comfort. He's going to be a shortcut to get us our middle-class ideals. He's going to be a shortcut to get whatever kind of greatness we want in our lives. And so we ask, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And if you don't, I'm going to be very angry, and I'm going to chuck it, or I'm going to figure out something else. Now, there are seasons, obviously, in our lives where we can serve, seasons also where we need to take a step back. It doesn't, this isn't a um, – Jesus isn't telling us you need to, uh, um, you know, take a flog and, and flog yourself. And if you're not, then you're not doing it right. Um, we don't have to have the burden of carrying everything on our backs. Um, but maybe the first question in our lives should be, how can I best live out my identity as a servant? Sometimes it might mean doing less because it might be doing, you're trying to act like a servant more than actually like, be the servant who you are. And sometimes it might be doing more things. I'm not just talking about Redeemer. I'm just talking about all the relationships that we have in our lives. Now this is different than using Jesus to make your life better. It's much more difficult. So I'll tell you some ways that I do this. When things are going good, I don't pray as often as I should because why do I need God? Things are going fine. Like I pray to God for things to go well and if things aren't going well, that's when I'll pray. If things are, then that's cool. I'm all right. That means I'm less mindful of God and I'm on autopilot, but the problem is autopilot is always like a little bit off from the destination and you just have a little bit one degree drift and you just keep drifting, just keep drifting. So before I know it, on that kind of faulty autopilot, it's been like days since I really had good kind of prayer time with God outside of like, you know, making sure I tick a box or something like that. I have to realign everything. Now all that has knock-on effects, like because my time now is my time. And a day off for me means ending up being about me only. How can I get recharged and refreshed the way that I need? And when things aren't progressing with the church the way I'd like, like this... I, get, I would get frustrated, right? I'd be like, oh, how, we can, how can we overcome this first? I'll work more hours than I should. And at this point, not because I'm serving others. I don't, I don't really care about being a servant at this point. I just want to get the things done so that something can look really good, so it can look great. Because I want to be in that place of glory. I want to shortcut pain and suffering and go right to the top. I don't want to be a servant. I want to be served, right? That's a, we're a walnut. Maybe it's just me. Maybe it's not ambition like it is for me. It could be comfort. Could be wealth. We have all kinds of things that we put in there. And most of those things are actually really great things. And the problem is, though, if they become the ultimate thing, they become a bad thing for us. But how often do we use Jesus to make our life better? How often are we trying to contort Jesus to make him fit into whatever works for us in the moment? Now, what if following him cost you something? Would you still be here next week? I'll give you this, Lord. I'll give you that, but not this thing over here. I think there are lots of ways we can embrace as a church true greatness and be more servant like to our community, to to our neighbors and to our friends. Um, we're not going to uh, spend a whole lot of time talking about that this morning, but um, an easy application for this is the um, what's called the eighty twenty rule. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember. Basically, like the eighty twenty rule is that twenty percent of people always do eighty percent of the work, and so you get like twenty percent of people who are doing loads of things and eighty percent of people who are like, kind of doing some things. That's how like basically most organizations work, typical organizations. Now, we are a small church plant, and that um, that's not true of us, I don't believe, um, because we're atypical for numerous reasons. Um, but let's be sure that as we serve, when we're serving, I think you guys are actually really great at serving. I mean, just setting up today is a good small little example of that. Um, let's be sure we aren't acting like servants. We're doing it because we feel like we ought to, but actually understanding that we are servants, and that we're just being who we are and that flows out of our identity understanding that we are servants means that we're going to serve not just do the things but we'll do the things in the right way and we'll be loving about it and it won't be some kind of um second tier kind of works oriented christianity um i would love to spend some time bragging on some people here but um we're going to make it uh, a little bit shorter this morning um, Outside of um, maybe you're originally thinking of Sundays um, but outside of Sundays there's all sorts of things we can get involved in for the community so trollton arts festival will be going on in May like we'll need people to get involved in that for our neighborhood we're going to be uh, somewhat in leading or somewhat involved in the Christmas light switch on thing in December for Chilton. Um And we need to you know, do things like that. We'll have the carol service that Liz is leading, so you can talk to Liz about that if you mm-hmm. want to join. Them. Well, all, We have all sorts of ways to be able to live out what it means to be servants in our community. Wouldn't it be great if people, even if they didn't like our message, it's like, oh, Redeemer, they really like, love this area. They really do a lot. They really serve well here. I would love for that to be who we are. And we can't force people to believe or not believe. Like That's not our job, like, but our job is to really act the way that Jesus is telling us to. Now, of course, like, we can't do it all. We're a small church, and I always want to do more than what we actually can, so sometimes you might need to be like, Greg, just take a step back and chill. Um, there's definitely no lack of opportunities. The question is, maybe there's something for you to get involved in that you haven't yet, or maybe there's something you take a step back from, or maybe there's something you're doing, and you're realizing, oh, yeah, I'm actually doing this because— I'm trying to fulfill some level of what I believe to be a Christian instead of actually believing that I am a servant and this is how we have to live. So as you think about um, all that, let's continue to hear this last section here about what God's saying to us. Um, so we're given a model of faith. So we have Jesus' view of greatness, um, our really jacked up view of greatness, and then we have this amazing um, story of a blind man getting healed at the end here, and Mark is putting these together for a reason. A blind man is able to see Jesus, is able to understand his greatness. The disciples are completely blind to what true greatness is, completely blind to who Jesus is, really. And Jesus heals this blind man. So in a group where we see little faith, this blind guy is uh, kind of a shining light. This starts in verse 46. Um, So if if you're blind, I mean, notice he's begging. So if you're blind, um, he's not going to be able to work. So he has to either rely on begging or his family just for food every day. Uh, at this point, 65 to 70% of people who lived during Jesus' time were day laborers. So if he didn't work that day, he didn't eat. So it wasn't like people had stored up wealth or, they, or savings or things to, to live off of. So it could be a very desperate situation for this guy. Um, being blind, yeah, it means he couldn't work. And he knew his status. He's a beggar. He's begging. He gets that he's not a celebrity. He knows who he is. He's not on the silver podium jealous of the gold. He's some kind of like audience member barely able, able to compete you know, I think there's a type of poverty that the rich have. Is If we are materially rich, we are spiritually blind to all the ways that we're poor. And this guy, though, he gets it. He doesn't want glory. He wants to see. He wants Jesus to heal him. The disciples weren't even interested in seeing Jesus. They wanted power. They wanted glory. So this guy calls out to Jesus, not as a grasp for glory, but in his need. Just son of David, have mercy on me. What we would normally sing every week have mercy on us now by itself this is a standard kind of healing miracle that we see but mark puts it here in stark contrast to what the disciples how the disciples really ought to be acting so are we spiritually blind beheld by values of glory of comfort and wealth or has jesus given us eyes to see what true greatness is really like and if we have eyes to see are our lives congruent with that Do the pieces fit together or are we kind of a bit misshapen? Maybe the question is, how are we misshapen and how do we need to reorganize our lives? This blind man should be one of our heroes, I think. Um, If you're asking for mercy, you're in a place of need, you're in a place of dependence. You know you don't have it all together. And this is where we should be because we want to see. So soon the disciples will see what Jesus has predicted. They will see him drink the cup of God's wrath. They will see the baptism of blood. They will know that no human can go through this in the way that he did, as a ransom for many. Um, the only one could do that. I'm right now uploading an image to the WhatsApp group because I can't not get around the image. I'm sorry. Um, so, uh, yeah, take your phones out. Start texting your friends. Um, the, uh, <laughs> check twitter and facebook what's going on um this is a sculpture from father john Kiefer titled can you drink from the cup i am about to drink which how can i not use a sculpture when coming to this section so jesus is the greatest servant uh, if you can't see it it's basically a cup full of thorns you cannot grab it actually because even the place where you grab it without being stabbed by thorns without having the baptism of blood drinking from the cup of wrath that jesus talks about Jesus, the greatest servant, exercised his greatness by giving his life to us. The cup of death that was poured out on him wasn't just his own death. It was all of our deaths. And he drank every last drop. Nobody else could have done this. Jesus did it. So that we can be healed of our spiritual blindness. So that we don't have to be caught and stuck in this kind of constant chase of of feeling, of trying to get whatever is great the way that James and John and the other disciples are all about. We should be blind no longer to true greatness as we get to see Jesus over and above our fears and our hopes. And so this is why we come to the bread and we come to the cup. And it might be a little bit cramped, but hopefully you'll be able to make your way up here. And if Michael spills his wine, we'll kick him out. We'll put it in the kitchen. Oh, never mind. (laughs) <laughs> There's only a few ways to get excommunicated from Redeemer. Spilling communion wine on our carpet. <laughs> <laughs> There's only a couch cover there. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Good call. Cover it up, just like good Christians. <laughs> <laughs> so we eat, we eat this bread, and we drink this cup together, and we believe, like, Jesus, you are the greatest. Help me live as your servant. We see, Jesus, you are the greatest. The way of living as a servant is the greatest thing for my life. Thank you for saving me. Help me to live out what it means to be a servant more than I am now. That's what happens for all of us who come up. That's, that's the, the walk that we have is that walk of repentance, knowing that we're seeking this true greatness, seeking greatness the way the disciples talked about, but we're called to seek a different kind of greatness when I'm being a servant. So all who believe are welcome to join in. You don't have to be a member here at Redeemer. Um, if you don't yet believe what, uh, what this is about, that drinking this means you have given up on your own greatness and you are accepting uh, Jesus' level of greatness, please don't come up and take it. You don't need to lie to yourself here. Jesus came to serve, not to be used. He came to heal, not be a stepping stone for whatever else we want in our lives. If you want Jesus to heal you, come and join with us, even if it's your first time. So we're spiritually blind, but thankfully we aren't left that way. Jesus has come to heal us and he gives us lives of true greatness of being servants. Let me pray.